and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Tyler Smith, and today we'll be talking about Minute 61, which begins with a cocooned colonist uh, asking Dietrich to kill her and ends with Hudson informing the Marines that there is movement. Yeah, and that is Tyler Smith from the Battleship Retention Podcast, uh, returning this time as guest host. Thanks for coming back, Tyler. Oh, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Some of you might remember uh, Tyler and his co-host David Bax from the Battleship Retention Podcast being on last season. Um, So I had to get those guys back. I haven't got David back yet, but Tyler's here, so it's good to have you back. It's it's good to be back. I think uh, I think we're and we're I'm back for a very specific moment in the film, which is very uh, exciting to talk about. Yeah. And yeah, you brought a guest along with you, of course. I did. I like to bring him everywhere I go. Uh, It is from, he's from the Nerdist, and he's just a a, a guy who knows all kinds, knows all kinds of stuff uh, that is often too nerdy, even for me. It is Kyle Anderson. Kyle, how you doing? I am great. Thanks for having me, Tyler and John as well. And uh, uh, (laughs) too nerdy, even for you. Yeah. uh, Is, is, uh, man, that's, that's some lofty praise you've hoisted upon me already. All right. Well, you guys ready to talk about minute 61 of Aliens? Sure. Let's go for it. So we're jumping right in. We just met um, our cocooned colonist here, sadly. Um, pretty horrific scene we're in the middle of here. We have our unnamed colonist cocooned. Um, yeah, this is rough. This is a rough place to come in, guys. I'm sorry you had to come in, at such a, in so, under such dire circumstances here, but... One thing I wanted to point out right away is that we get an immediate echo or call back to Ripley's nightmare from earlier in the movie, right? We get this immediate line where she's asking Dietrich or God, is she saying, God, please kill me? Or is she just saying, please kill me? Do you guys know? Uh, please kill me is, is how I've always heard it. Yeah. yeah. I saw in the screenplay that it's God, please kill me. And I thought, mm. oh, maybe I just didn't hear that part, but Anyway, so we're getting exactly what Ripley says to her doctors in her dream or nightmare at the beginning of the movie. So nice callback. We're, we're throwing Ripley right into the middle of the thing that's been chasing her through the whole movie, right? So it's a nice moment for her, for her character. Well, and you know what's interesting to me is that uh, this is something I've only – I rewatched the film um, – recently just to have it fresh in my mind even though i watched it a million times when i was a kid uh there's something i really respect about the way this screenplay is structured because though of course we see ripley and we see uh spaceships and we see jones the cat and that sort of thing but uh cameron takes his time reintroducing the elements of the alien itself um like we do get Ripley's nightmare. So we see something coming out of her chest, but it's, it's, it doesn't actually break through and there's no blood. It's kind of this weird form. So that's the first thing. And then when the Marines show up and we see the melted metal, like, okay, that's another indicator of the alien. And then we see face huggers, uh, albeit floating in these, uh, in these tubes. And so, Little by little, he's reintroducing these things that we have a, uh, an association with as viewers. And then here we go. Now we have uh, we have the chest burster. And so he's kind of building it up in the proper order, which is face hugger, chest burster. And then we see the the warrior aliens. And then later on in the film, he will introduce 
the next step, which is uh, the queen. And so it's something that I don't think I realized is one of the things that I like so much about the first one is how much it takes its time. And when you think about it, we're not getting any full blown alien imagery until at least 45, 50 minutes into the film, maybe even a full hour. And that's something that I actually respect is the amount of restraint that Cameron has. Although once we actually see it, it's pretty horrendous. Yeah. I, I, this minute is an interesting one because it's, it's full on horror. I mean, cause we talk a lot about, and, and people have written a lot about how aliens is, uh, a tonal shift from Alien. It's not the the you know straight up haunted house horror movie that the first movie is, but this this section is absolutely like it is the most you know straight down the line horror movie that this movie actually gets, uh, in my opinion. And we start with this this moment of this woman looking you know horrendous, almost like a zombie already. She looks almost dead, asking to be killed, and then we end with all of these aliens coming down. Um, as the onslaught we've only ever seen one full-grown alien at once in the previous film and now we see all these ones at once and it's just it, it's a nightmare sequence and um, uh, it even he, you know he even changes Cameron even changes the look of the chest burster a little bit and it's got these little arms that wiggle back and forth which the the one in the first alien doesn't have it's got you know it's looks more much more like a t-rex um, and, and I think even that is a, like more nightmarish where, you know, it's like, it's like taunting you kind of <laughs> as it bursts <laughs> out of her chest. Um, yeah, it's, you know, this is sort of the moment where everything really starts going to hell for them and, uh, and they don't know how to handle it, which is, you know, all these, all these, uh, men and women who are just like, you know, beating their chests like, oh yeah, we can take on anything. It's, you know, it's nothing but a bug hunt. And then it's like, nah, you are immediately out of your element. Um, and I really like I like that change, that rug pull kind of moment uh, that Ripley knows is hap- going to happen, but nobody else knows it's going to happen. And and she just kind of has to sit there and, and watch and like she clutches at her chest that she's, uh, you know, she knows what's about to happen. She has these pains. She has the dream like you were talking about. And uh, yeah, it, it really works for me. It's a very, <laughs> you know, because I didn't know what minutes we were going to be doing. And then you sent me the clip and I hit play and I'm like, oh, we're we're getting into it. <laughs> this is this is yeah. the minute we're going with. So, uh, yeah, I really uh, I think this is a terrifying sequence right here. Yeah, we, we talked about that a little bit in the last minute about their discovery of this sort of cocoon chamber, for lack of a better way to put it, is so jaw dropping to these Marines. And we needed that. We've seen them, like you said, uh, pounding their chest and, and bragging about their weaponry, their technology just basically being, you know, arrogant, braggadocious military men and women. And as soon as they walk in, even Apone, who is the, you know, top dog, number one guy, coolest customer, clearly has the most experience. When he sees a guy cocooned up to the wall like that, his jaw just drops. And that's what we need. We need that gear shift. Like you said, like a rug pull gear shift moment in the movie. And it reminds me, I love, um, I love the idea of taking characters from one genre of movie into another, even if it's for a little while. And, and that like sort of meta experience, if you will, of having characters actually thrust into a different genre that they're not prepared for. It really, for some reason, the one thing that comes to my mind uh, that's very recent is in Stranger Things towards the end. Spoilers for Stranger Things if anyone hasn't watched it. But we have one character in that show that through every episode of the series up to the last episode has totally been in a, in a uh, John Hughes movie completely, completely unaware of the sci-fi horror stuff that's been going on around him. And then he walks into that trailer in the last episode and all this shit's going down. And he's just going, 
what? Over and over again, like, what? I found that so gratifying to take a character from one genre and literally just drop him into another genre and see how he reacts. And it, that's a more comedic, maybe even more meta version of it, obviously, than this. But I like that here because we need that for these Marines. If we have just an action movie continuing on and we don't drop them into this haunted house horror movie situation, then I'm not sure you know, what we're really saying, why we really built them up to be what they are. We have to have that hubris built up and then throw them at something that they've never seen before. So this section of the movie really shifts gears for those characters specifically. And there's a, there's a sort of a reset after they uh, kill the, the chest burster. There's, you know, there, there's all this noise. There's the, the sound of the flamethrower. There's the sound of the chest burster screaming. There's the sound of Ripley reacting. And then after it's done, the thing is dead. The woman is dead. And then there's actually a fair amount of silence. It, it only lasts for a few seconds, but it's a definite silence. And everybody, and you know, there's something's on fire now. And everyone just kind of sitting, just sort of standing there. Uh, and it's not funny, but it is almost as if they're saying like, okay, all right. Now what do we do? And and it really just kind of it's it's hard to explain. I, I as as I said when I was on uh, Alien Minute, it's interesting to watch this movie this way because you come to realize how how much thought is put into each minute and each moment. And the moment after everyone has seen this terrible thing, Ripley is reminded of this terrible thing, and then they react to it. Everyone is there's a moment as everybody is immediately adjusting their expectations, and that's when we start to see the aliens move. Like that is when okay, it's been 61 minutes. It is now time to show the to show the viewers the alien once again, and they move into this very otherworldly way. They're kind of silhouetted, so you can't totally make out what's happening. Um, but there is there's definitely. Uh, between both the the chest burster and then immediately seeing several aliens, you know, this is when the film lives up to its title, uh, several aliens start to move. There's an element in me, and I'm sure a number of people that were watching it at the time, where it's just like, oh, here we go. From here on in, it, it's, it's going to be a completely, not a different movie, but there's no coming back now. You know, right. with every, they always had the option of not going down to the planet or, okay, we're in a safe place. There's no aliens, no colonists. And there's the idea. It's like, they're probably in danger, but not a hundred percent now that there is movement. And we just know that from now on, nobody is safe and everything is going to change. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the, it's the moment that everybody else in the entire movie starts taking Ripley seriously. Uh, yeah. Whether they realize it or not. Like, I mean, because obviously uh, Gorman doesn't necessarily right away. Um, Burke, we can sort of assume that he at least believes her for the most part. But all of the Marines, I'm sure, even though they don't say it out loud, are all like, oh, geez, this is <laughs> this is uh, this is way worse than we thought. Um, and and I, I really I love the the kind of character that is the like the the big dog like growling and then you you know they're easily scared by like a small dog or something like that like that happens in cartoons and things and and you have a whole basically most of the cast is that <laughs> and then uh you know it's it's so it happens so quick and they you know panic sets in and um 
uh, and they don't know what to do. And, and, and like you were saying, Tyler, it's that, that moment of silence where there's like, they no, none of them know what to do now. Like they just had to light a woman on fire as a monster, a tiny monster burst out of her chest. Uh, and they don't, they don't know how to handle it at all. And it's that kind of processing the quiet before the storm. And, and I really like that, you know, we start to see stuff moving and, and, and we know this is maybe the worst, <laughs> the worst possible thing that they could have uh, come across. And, and they just came in, you know, blithely like, Oh, you know, we got the tools, we got the talent or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> nope. and, and I just, it makes me uh, excited. It makes me excited. And, you know, cause with the exception of maybe Hicks, I don't like any of these Marines. Uh, I don't know if that's like a, a controversial thing to say. Uh, I, I truly dislike most of the characters in this movie. Um, and and seeing most of them who were so dismissive of Ripley early on in the movie just, you know, start to get their comeuppance, whether deservedly or just through, you know, naivete, I guess. It's, it's sort of gratifying for me. I was just going to say, in fairness, I do think that they handle it, or at least Apone handles this specific situation of the chestburster correctly. Like, I think they, he actually seems to have listened to the briefing and mm. he knows what to do. Cause clearly Ripley, whatever they were ordered to read the, the debriefing they were supposed to go through earlier in the film after she gives them her story in the docking bay. Um, clearly they picked up, okay, well f- flame units are what we are going to go with as far as killing these things. Clearly you don't want to like right away, shoot one of them. Uh, they go right to the flamethrower, and I think that that's competently pulled off. I think that that, okay, you got the job done. You killed the chest burster. Uh, you stopped that thing from happening. At least you got it, kept it from running off the table as it did in the in the first movie. But I like the juxtaposition of that where, like Tyler, you said there's this moment of silence, and everybody goes, okay, what the fuck do we do now? You show them then, okay, now what are you going to Here is something. What are you going to do now? Here's a bunch of stuff that you haven't seen before that not even Ripley's really seen before. She hasn't. She's seen one of these. She hasn't seen a lot of them. She hasn't seen them come out of the walls yet. And so having them take care of business in a small sort of way, while obviously it still throws them off considerably, I think that's kind of a nice juxtaposition to then throw this thing at them that they're never going to be able to handle. Mm. Yeah, that's it. That's actually a really good point, yeah. And to talk about the juxtaposition, let's actually let's compare this with the chestburster scene in Alien. In both cases, there is a profound, dumbfounded silence afterwards. But when you think, but what is the difference? The difference is that in the first one, Ash was trying to protect the alien, and thus nobody killed it. And there you go. This time, chestburster comes out. They kill it because these are Marines. This is what they are there for. And so there's still the same silence after uh, they see the chestburster, but the rea- but it's it's it it underlines the difference in the two films. You know, this time it's war, and this is what war looks like. Um, but then I also, Kyle, you said something that struck me, uh, which is, you know, they weren't just killing this chestburster; they were also essentially killing this woman. Now she's basically dead anyway. But uh, you know, this was meant to be a rescue operation. That's how uh, Apon mentions it and so in this moment as they are seeing the colonists up there and then they see this woman i think there's this understanding on everybody's part though they never actually say it there's this understanding that well i guess it's not a rescue operation anymore now we just i guess need to leave um and so although they don't leave 
uh, quickly enough, obviously. Um, and so, uh, again, like everything about this chestburster moment causes everyone to completely realign their thinking. It could be, hey, you know what? I think Ripley was right. Or it's uh, our mission is not what we thought it was going to be. And so everyone is is taking a moment. And I wonder if they had been allowed a little bit longer, if the aliens didn't start moving and attacking right now, if they were given 30 more seconds of silence to think about it, I wonder if they'd say, all right, it's time to go. There's no point in us in, in us being here when there are no survivors. Um, and so I don't know. It's it's such an interesting it's such an interesting, you know, uh, I was going to say pregnant moment, but it feels weird given what we've just seen. Uh, but, yeah, it's a very loaded moment of silence, if only for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you wonder if, you know, given that 30 seconds, would Gorman have made that call? Or would Apone have yeah. advised that he make that call? It would have. There still would have been this chain of command problem <laughs> that they uh, sure. were going to see a lot of this next, you know, week. So yeah, you're you're probably right, but it, you still have to wonder with these guys if they were really going to make that call, even given the time, if that would have happened fast enough, no matter what. But Gorman, you know, Gorman, you know, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit though, he sees the problem playing out and still doesn't make that call. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Uh, it's tough. That's what one of the reasons why I think Ripley, you know, they, they set up, they sort of foreshadowed this with Ripley looking on and responding to the Marines earlier in the movie is with kind of kind of a shaken head where she doesn't clearly doesn't feel that comfortable with these guys. They're not really set up as being competent. They're just set up as being like arrogant. So put them in this situation. Yeah, maybe they would have had time to get out. But, you know, that's kind of a perfect world scenario in a way with these guys. I don't know. They still probably would have fallen all over each other just looking for the order. Or I guess they could have disobeyed the order or, or just done whatever they wanted. But I don't know. I guess we kind of see that play out as the week goes on. This is, I, I think, the, as close as the Marines get to being like, uh, we're still sort of in control. We didn't. We were not expecting this. And hey, maybe we uh, should have listened more to Ripley and read that stuff. But yeah, this is as close as they get in the movie to uh, that thirty seconds, or, or ter- you know, two seconds, or however long it is of of reflection. That's the that's the closest they have to victory <laughs> in for the next hour of the film. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, there's almost an element like, all right, guys, we did it. Let's go home. Yeah, there's not even time for them to do that, to reflect on the thing that just happened. Like, hey, we just lit a woman on fire. Uh, are we, did we win? What happened? Well, yeah, what, do you, what does it say about this movie if their one moment of victory is setting a woman, innocent woman on fire? Yeah. Just, just to really kill a thing that just fulfilling burst. her wishes. That's all they really did. A woman begs for death. We fulfill that wish. Yay. We it's like, <laughs> it's a victory. It's like, oh, my God. We shot at a kid, uh, didn't kill her, so I guess that's a big win. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. This just never really goes well for these guys at any point in this movie, I guess, when you put it that way. Yeah. Oh, I did want to go back for a second, just for a technical, just to run through a little bit of editing and, and kind of technical stuff. Earlier, when Ripley is watching the chest bursting occur, I noticed, I kind of went back to the last couple of minutes to make sure that I wasn't crazy, but when they're first, you know, huddled around the monitors, her and Gorman and Burke and, and Newt, they, um, 
everything's lit relatively warm. It's going to be a kind of cold. This whole movie's a blue, you know, blue lit movie. So it's never going to be exactly warmly lit. But relative to this moment when she's witnessing this chest bursting again, um, she looks fairly, you know, healthy. She's not sweating. Everything's okay. And man, do they change the lighting. Uh, It looks to me, at least, the lighting scheme here, the little push in they're doing is a nice touch. And then she's sweating profusely and grabbing at her chest. I thought that was a really nice mirror between her and the, the woman, the colonist. We actually get this moment where she sort of becomes her for a moment. And we know that she has been her, at least in her nightmares. So I just wanted to point out that there's nice little editing and lighting scheme here that had to be intentional and works really well. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll see this, uh, throughout these next few minutes, uh, where, the it's not very it's not super blue and if you look at like gorman's face and ripley's face like the the monitors seem to be sort of uh shining a light on their face making them look particularly pale and sweaty uh and just like essentially like they've lost all color in their face based on what they are what they are witnessing but actually can't do anything to stop yeah as the week goes on gore we'll talk about it when we get there but gorman's right. not looking so good <laughs> just, no he looks like something's about to come out yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, very few people look as clammy on tell or on, on a film as gorman yeah. does <laughs> i did want another thing i wanted to point out was that we get right after the it's really i guess during this moment of silence that we talk we've been talking about we get gorman sort of throws a line at, at Apone, like what's going on. And we get a quick shot of Apone's body cam. Mm-hmm. And I just really like this moment. There's all these little cutaways to the body cam. And I think that they're really significant most of the time. As you watch this minute by minute, you realize they're not just doing it for uh, just to do it, just to have something to cut away to. In this case, I thought it was really significant that when Gorman asks Apone, you know, his one main advisor, what's going on, we get a shot of his body cam and there's basically no information on it. Like you can't make out anything. And I think that's a nice little moment where also we're getting, that's what Gorman's really looking to. We talked about that a lot. He's so dependent on these monitors and on the technology and on the by the book orders that he throws out there that really what he's doing is looking, he says, Apone, what's going on? He looks into the monitor and if there's nothing there, that guy's going to be lost. And I think that's a nice moment that we get once again showing Gorman. He's just way out of his element. Yeah. This wasn't in the simulation, was it, man? (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to, uh, because, you know, the the chestburster is dead. Everyone is, is taking stock of what they've just seen. And then we see... Then we see the movement before Hudson announces there is movement. And the movement is particularly... I remember in Alien, when we first see the actual Alien, uh, we see it kind of drop down behind Harry Dean Stanton. And it's hard to tell exactly how it moves. You know, we never actually see the Alien, like, walk. You know, Uh, it it seems to be particularly otherworldly. And I think it definitely comes through in this film a lot when you see that they are very comfortable just clinging to walls and clinging to ceilings. And then when they start moving, like it seems like they're like, they have more limbs than they actually do. And then the, the sound effect has an impact as well. There's like a a weird, uh, 
particularly uh, insectoid, like weird crackling sound and 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 slimy sound as they uh, remove themselves from the wall. And it's, I'm, I'm tr- anytime we do this, I try to imagine what it would be like if I was my age seeing this film in the theater, having seen Alien, and having all of that associated with uh, with this. And then you see multiple aliens coming out, and you're you're reminded of Ripley saying, "Just one of these things managed to wipe out my entire crew," and now you're seeing several uh, come out of the walls. And uh, it really is. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the time there were like gasps. I mean, everybody knew what was going to be happening eventually, but as this is happening, I mean, it it seems pretty clear that even though these Marines have a lot of guns and a lot of firepower. It really does seem like they are a hundred percent outmatched, even before we see that how outmatched they are. Yeah, I kind of wonder if, in this moment, if you're watching Aliens for the first time in 1986, if this scene is so frenetic in so many ways, and the, and the way it's lit here with the aliens unraveling and so on, and the sound effect. I wonder if it really gives you time to think about it enough. That's what I would like to know. Like, if I were in the mind of one of those people, it's like, did you really like? Did you actually absorb what was happening in this moment or was your heart racing a little too much? Was it too tense? Cause I kind of feel like the payoff is coming, you know, in the next minute, I believe. And that would be the big gasp moment maybe, but you're right. There's probably a lot of people that picked up on it right away and went, Oh shit, look, this is way different than what we saw before. But yeah. you know, in the next minutes when we get, you know, guaranteed gasps yeah. and we see what this alien's really capable of. And I really think that a lot of what went on in alien with the, you know, as we know from a lot of the cut footage that we've seen of crab walking aliens and so on, that it was really just the limitations. They just couldn't quite it really. Scott was so afraid of the man in the monster suit yeah. uh, problem of the movie that he avoided it. And, and to the movie's benefit, I think, but I really feel as this movie goes on that they figured it out by then. I think that this, I love how this plays out, how these aliens come out of the wall, the movement and everything looks so good. It never makes me think of a man in a, in a suit. And I, th- I think it's a real accomplishment to it. And another one of those ways where Cameron is escalating what Scott had done in Alien. But I do think that, like, what makes that work in this movie uh, owes a lot to the way Ridley Scott shot it. So because we don't need to see a ton of movement from the aliens to to know that A, they're there and B, that they're dangerous. So, like, at the end of this at this minute where the aliens start to come down, that's not a ton of movement. Like, that's a few seconds. And. Uh, you're not focusing on the fact that it's a guy in a suit or anything in a suit. You're just saying, oh, no, like it, that H.R. Giger design is so iconic at this point that that's all you need to see. It's just a little bit of movement. And obviously later on when you see the full size queen alien and they're, you know, it's moving entirely. But this this sequence is, is definitely like still trying to hold back a little bit, even though it's showing you more and more of the alien and more aliens than we've seen in in Ridley Scott's movie entirely. Uh, I like that they're they're still kind of being like uh, we're unsure of what we're seeing because they're unsure of what they're seeing, and uh, and and they can blend into the background and it's just you know quick movements and this is really the uh, the aliens in their element because they can blend into this weird you know creepy wall that they may as w- it may as well have just been hey we're part of the wall <laughs> like that's well, I mean, how much yeah. they exactly blend in. That's why they made it, right? I yeah. mean, you might guess that, you know, not only are they cocooning people and they need the structure for that, 
but they're also wanting to lay in wait for anyone else who might come along. So that's definitely a, a change that we didn't we didn't get any of that in Alien. Um, so yeah. it's it's another place. That it's you know w- what we did in a way because we get that uh, brilliant setup in Alien of all the like shiny sh- canisters and things that you see all the rounded off sets um, parts of the sets throughout the movie. To where then when you get into the uh, narcissist and, and Ripley's trying to escape and about to go into cryosleep, the alien head blends in perfectly in the environment. Mm-hmm. And it's almost another one of those moments, I say this all the time, almost incessantly, where Cameron was clearly watching Alien and writing notes and saying, okay, that's a great idea. How can I escalate that? So with the alien head hiding so perfectly in the shuttle at the end of Alien, he said, let's just make a that the aliens make an environment that they can hide in. The same thing will happen. You can't see them. They're just part of the wall. And I think it's brilliant. It's great. Uh, it's a great idea. I had, uh, I know that we uh, need to move on at some point, but I I find myself, when I think about aliens I fi- and, and loving the first film as much as I do, I find my mind drifting towards this question, and I think I'm the only one that has ever felt this way uh, that I know of. There's something, the alien in the first film is so iconic, even though we see very, uh, very little of it. What we do see is, I mean, it's, it's branded upon our, our minds from then on. Uh, is there something a little bit demystifying about aliens where I recognize that there's this element of like, oh my gosh, we know what one can do. Imagine what a, you know, what set, what hundreds or dozens or hundreds could do. Imagine that. Um, but there's something about by now having many of them, it feels like it makes the alien in the first film not that big of a deal. Like to me, it's such an iconic beast um, that to have several of them, it kind of not trivializes it, but it somehow reduces it in my mind, which I, and I think I honestly feel like James Cameron might think that as well, which is why he understood that you can't just have a bunch of warrior aliens because then the, the enemy might be all around you, but is still kind of faceless, which is why the queen is so important. Yeah, exactly. It still becomes this singular thing that is in charge in the first one. It's one alien and this, it is the queen. Uh, but then in doing that, it, I feel like that also maybe reduces the danger level of the uh, the individual warrior alien. Um, and it doesn't keep me from enjoying this movie, but it does... I don't know, I think that's one of the reasons that I prefer the first film is because this creature is just treated so mythically in that film, whereas here, because it is more of an action film and more of a war film, uh, by definition, it's one, there's an army of aliens, so any one recruit, not recruit, any one warrior is not that important. It's just one more thing coming at at the Marines that they have to shoot and kill. So... I don't know if that's something you guys have ever thought about. Uh, I've gotten a fair amount of disagreement uh, from people when I say this, but uh, but what's your what's your thought on that? I feel well, like that that is uh, mostly true. I think that um, one of the other things is that in the first movie we just kind of see the process. We, there's the eggs, and that's weird, and then the face hugger, and that's weird, and then the chest burster, that's weird, and then it grows so fast, and it's like we, we don't have time to really understand this creature and then it's huge and it's killing us. Um, 
and uh, and it has acid blood and all the uh, there's no time to like know anything about them going into this movie we know all that stuff and and then uh, there's a, a several of them and Cameron feels the need to like explain kind of like the society of aliens or at least the colony like what they do and uh, and how they work and everything like that he he even felt like that's why the queen exists is because he was watching the first movie and thought, oh, there, there, there probably is something laying the eggs as opposed to it being just like a singular, which I think was Dan O'Bannon or whoever his original idea was that uh, one one regular alien is sort of an uh, an asexual being that can just lay all these different eggs mm-hmm. and uh, and just it re- reproduces that way. But Cameron was like, no, you know, I, I feel like this is like a beehive and it needs, you know, so he's creating this like, um, you know, hierarchy there. So it kind of over explains it. And so it's sort of the same way that like, you know, I'm a doctor who fan. So like, I'm going to tie it into that. But like, you know, the first time you see a Dalek, it's like, Oh, that's creepy. And it's like, look how, look how much damage it can do. And then after that, it's like, there's a trillion Daleks and we know who the creator of the Daleks is. And uh, you know, like, so individual Daleks just become much less scary. And same with the aliens here. I think that, you know, as a group in this scene that we're talking about, they can take out all these Marines and it's really scary, but this is the only time in the movie where just a warrior alien is kind of scary. Yeah. Um, because the rest of the movie is about how do we kill them? Oh, it's the queen. That's what we really need to worry about. And you know, it's, it is interesting. I, I this in, in making that doctor who reference, I think, uh, I think that helps me to understand like how instinctively, strong a storyteller uh james cameron is because you even mentioned there i believe they're called daleks daleks right yeah and doctor who yeah, and you mentioned like thank you uh it's like oh there's a bunch of them and this is the man who created them like it's interesting how when you actually make a bunch of the of this thing it sort of becomes a common denominator and the important thing isn't them even as a big collective army the important thing is where did they come from yeah um and so then, and, and it's interesting because some people after the first alien thought like, oh, what is, wh- where did the alien come from? What's the space jockey? But I think people were kind of content to let it just be a, a very strange mystery. But with, but with uh, a society now established in aliens, I feel like you got a lot more people thinking like, oh, I'd like to go to the planet of the aliens. I'd like to see where they started. I'd like to, you know, uh, there's something about people, the more, the more information you introduce, the more people actually want, uh, which I find very interesting, and in what what has led to a number, uh, a couple of I think very misguided films in the last few years that uh, attempt to explain the origin of the alien, and I think make it remarkably uninteresting. But that might just be me. No, it's also me. I agree okay. with you on yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Don't don't yeah. tell me about it. Knowing about <laughs> Michael Myers makes me not as scared of Michael Myers. Exactly. See, I. I really don't have much to add to what you guys are saying other than I kind of feel like Cameron immediately knew that he was going to undercut the menace of the individual alien warrior. As soon as he wrote that S on the end of alien, you know, I think that he said, okay, what we're going to be talking about here is volume, like over being overwhelmed by numbers. And, you know, at the time he seemingly was of a military mindset. He was, you know, it just, made a movie about an army fighting against an army of mechanical, you know, of of mechanical monsters basically. And 
there's talk of his brother-in-law, I think it is, that was in Vietnam, and he got a lot of stories from him. So I think he was just really in this mindset of, of, a, of a war movie. And he said, you know, I don't kind of don't care about how menacing the individual alien is, and I don't think he really needed to care about that since that had been done. There was really no way to do it again anyway. So what makes this movie one of the great sequels in my mind is that he just kind of does disregard that and moves us to a different place. And you're right. I think, Tyler, you were saying, you know, well, after a while, having a bunch of warrior aliens running around, is going to run out of steam. So you're going to have to have that queen. I think that's true, too. And it's also saying um, if Ripley doesn't take care of this queen, everybody's fucked. Like the, this is going to be a nonstop alien making machine. I mean, it's going to be there's going to be three S's on the end of alien for the next movie. You know, <laughs> if we don't stop this queen right now. So I think that that escalates it to a, a certain point, And I think it works really well. I also kind of think, uh, sorry for every, everyone out there that loves alien three. I also kind of think there's nowhere to go from there. <laughs> I think it's mm-hmm. kind of, as far as the alien goes, I guess you get in your existential alien film with alien, alien three. But for me, as far as, the menace of the alien goes, you kind of reached your peak here. Yeah. I think, okay, now we know where they come from. Fine. The queen's good enough of an answer for me. She came from some planet. I don't care. But if she keeps making, you know, keeps laying eggs, everybody's screwed. Get rid of her. Once she's gotten rid of, then I think that we're probably good to shut the franchise down at that point. But like you said, Tyler, that little bit added information might have been just a little bit of blood in the water, you know, yeah. for everyone to go, oh, where'd that queen come from? Well, they didn't really do that with Alien 3, but boy, it started happening recently. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get lost in the weeds in some of this stuff, but it's just like, uh, it. you may know a lot about it, but it doesn't make it more interesting that way. Not to me. I mean, I, I still prefer Alien. I still like the, main, you know, the mano a mano kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I like that one creature. That is so menacing and so weird, but um, I love it. Obviously, I love aliens enough to talk about it for hours and hours on end. So <laughs> this is working for me too. But yeah, I think that I don't know. The more, yeah, this is about the limit of information I want about this. I think that it goes about as far as it needs to go here. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys have anything else for this minute? I think I'm good. Yep, I'm good too. All right, uh, Kyle. Would you like to tell the listeners where they can find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Functional Nerd. Uh, you can read everything that I write on uh, Nerdist.com. Uh, also, I do a monthly Doctor Who podcast, speaking of Doctor Who, called Doctor Who The Writer's Room, where we take a look at the writing in the first 26 years of the show, which was the classic series from 63 to 89. Uh, and I also do a monthly um, horror podcast with some friends called The Classic Horror Cast. Both of those you can find on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and Classic Horrorcast is part of the Battleship Pretension Network. Hey, and Tyler, you want to let everybody know about you? Yeah, uh, I am uh, with Battleship Pretension, aforementioned. And then I also host a podcast called More Than One Lesson. And then uh, if I, uh, I'll go ahead and say this. I, I have a book out of reviews and essays that I have uh, written over the years. It is called Worth Watching, and people can uh, order that at worthwatchingbook.com. All right, and you can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, and uh, come over to Tee Public if you want to check out some of our t-shirt designs. we got a bunch of them over there. They're probably on sale right now. I'm just guessing. They're almost always on sale. So, um, Also, it's Monday, so we like to thank Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer over at Star Wars Minute for coming up with this concept and letting us use it. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute 61. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 62.